I love Baptism Sunday. People making this commitment once they've come to Christ and then following him in obedience for believers' baptism, just great stuff. We're glad you're here today. I uh, hope you're enjoying our service. We are wrapping up a series called Sketchy Views of God. And this is a series that's addressing this phenomenon that happens where people sometimes look at God or they turn away from God, but the problem is the God, the way they're viewing God is wrong. It's a sketchy view. It's a wrong view of God. And then when they have that view of God, God somehow disappoints them or doesn't do what they expect him to do. And then they're turned off by that or they walk away because of that. But really it all starts with having a right view of who God is. And so that's what we're doing. So whether you believe in God or not, or whether you've you're following God right now, or whether you've walked, you used to believe and, and you kind of walked away, whatever it is, we're glad that you're, you're here. And we want to address this because sketchy views of God can cause us to have doubts about faith. And it's okay to have some doubts, but we, we deal with those doubts by discovering more information. Ask the questions, get the answers. Deal with your doubts. Don't just have a doubt and, and then stop right there. Work it, you know, figure it out. And so during the series for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about um, how God exists and the scientific proofs for God. And then last week, we talked about things like uh, the on-demand God and the anti-science God and the gap God and the feelings God you know, all these are bad views of God and why they're all wrong. And this is important for us, even if you feel like, no, I'm good with God and, and I think I understand God. Well, beyond that, God's calling all of us who are believers that we would be able to express, teach people, show people, defend our faith against people who don't believe to help them understand. First Peter 3.15, we've been reading this verse every time. It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, but yet do this with gentleness and reverence or respect. So that's what he's called us to do. So either this is for you or if this is really not for you, it's to equip you to help others. So maybe the issue that causes more doubts about God, maybe the sketchy view of God that causes more doubts about God than any other issue is the problem of evil and suffering. And so we've all heard this probably expressed one way or another. It goes like this. If if God is all-loving, perfect love, and God is all-powerful, then why would, does he allow evil and pain and suffering to exist in our world? You know, how can, if that's true, God's all-loving, God's all-powerful, how, how can bad things happen to good people? And, and, and we're gonna work through this, but let me just say right off the top, that it's biblical Christianity makes sense of and gives meaning to and offers a solution for 
evil and suffering like no other view in the world does. And so we're going to see that. So I believe there are three sketchy views of God that spin off this problem of evil and suffering in the world. And the first is this. I'll call it the impersonal force God. Impersonal force. God is a force, uh, but you know he's really not connected to us. He's disinterested. And so many feel this disconnection from God in pain like he is disconnected, disinterested, or at a distance. And so because of that, they feel he's not a personal God. It's just a force and uh, what's interesting is, is this a view, this is a view that's growing in our country today. A, a recent poll showed that 33% of Americans believed in an impersonal God. A, a God, you know, that was distant, imp- just kind of an impersonal force. And as you break that down, what's interesting is if you had asked those people, do you believe in God or not? Some of these 33% would say, yeah, I believe in God. I just think he's impersonable. We, we don't have a connection with him. And other, other people in that 33% would say, no, I don't believe in God. I just believe there is an impersonal force in the universe. So that's kind of interesting. Some of those people believe there's a God or not. They don't really know how to label it. But I'll just start off by saying it's logically impossible for a non-personal God to make persons who are self-aware. I mean, that doesn't really logically make any sense. But the God of the Bible, we know, has revealed himself as personal and eternal. In that, for example, God, the God of the Bible, has always existed in Trinity. That means God, one God, has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously. One God in three persons. And what this means is God has always existed in relationship, in community, always. God's lived like that. He's the opposite of impersonal. For example, in Genesis 1:26, at creation, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We're created in the image of God with the ability to have relationship, to be in relationship, to be in a personal relationship, and to connect with God. Again, God is the opposite of impersonal. He's a personal God who created you, loves you, and wants a connection, or he wants to relate with you. He wants a relationship with you. And so the question comes, well, where, if, if that's God and he's all-loving, all-powerful, where does evil, pain, and suffering come from? Well, actually, it came from us. Here's how Romans 5, 12 says it. Just as through one man, and that's a reference to Adam, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul is just referring to the fact that God created the universe and our world and said that it was good, and that he created man and then woman, and they lived in a perfect environment. 
And living in this perfect environment, they had all kinds of freedom. God gave them freedom. It's funny because people view Christianity or they view God, view God like, oh, God has all these rules that we have to do all this stuff. But actually in the garden, they lived in a perfect environment and there was only one rule. The one rule was enjoy everything except the fruit of one tree in the garden. And then we know what happened in the freedom that was a gift from God. You can't have freedom if you can't go the other way. And so in their freedom, they rebelled against God. They did what God said not to do. And before we're too hard on them, we've been doing that ever since. You and I have both done the exact same thing. We have done what God has told us not to do at different points in our life. So God didn't create sin, death, suffering, and evil. They entered the world as a result of our sin, our rebellion against him. And so Adam and Eve misused their freedom, and we today misuse our freedom to rebel against God. We do the exact same thing. So now, that's the impersonal God. Now, people in church can have a sketchy view of God because of pain and suffering, because of this kind of dilemma. And so if they don't kind of push God off as an, an impersonal God and write God off that way, a lot of times there's this inner turmoil with people and they typically either deal with that sort of with their head or with their heart. But before I get to that, I wanna point out something that we should always point out anytime somebody's talking to us about the existence of God and saying something like, well, if God existed, how could he be all powerful, all loving, and all this evil and suffering in the world? What, the first thing that we should say to people in response to that before we answer them, and we can't answer them, but the first thing we should say is, hey, by the way, God not existing, the denial of God's existence doesn't fix the problem of pain and suffering and evil in our world. As a matter of fact, it just shifts the problem somewhere else. And here's what I mean by that. We're saying, hey, pain and suffering are bad. And then we're saying some things are good and some things are evil. So the point is this, how can somebody make that statement if there is no God? Because if there is no God, that means a bunch of stuff came from nowhere and then some of that stuff collided with some other stuff, and then that exploded, and things started expanding, and then somehow, out of nowhere, because two rocks collided or whatever, life was created, and then after life was created, somewhere out of nowhere, each species was created that has DNA uh, intelligence, information that's in their DNA that just came from nowhere. I mean, that, that's what we're saying. Well, if all that's true, if we're just a huge cosmic accident, how can we say some things are good and bad? If it's survival of the fittest, then whatever I do that harms others that, that I think benefits me, why would, we, why would we expect anything different from that if it's survival of the fittest? So if there's a universal standard called evil and good, that in itself is an argument for God because it makes no sense to have a standard like that if it's just all of our opinions. So I was reading a, an article this week 
Sometimes I read about news around the world, especially when it affects Christians. This happened to be in Africa. Christians are being slaughtered over there. Don't hear much about it on our news media. But Christians are being killed in Africa. And a lot of that is coming from persecution from Muslim people. And so I read this story where in this one village, two infants, meaning less than a year of age, two small children separately were had bombs strapped to them and then they put them out in the community and then when people would go out to help those children, they would set the bomb off. And so we would all, almost the whole world, except for maybe that group of people doing that, everybody else would say that is evil, wrong, bad, right? Well, where do we get that standard of wrong? Does that make sense that we even have a standard that says, hey, that has to come objectively. It's not just all of our opinions. Or how do we pretty much all agree that that's wrong? Why? The fact that we have that kind of universal understanding of right and wrong, and that's not everything. Some things we split hairs on all the time. But if there's, you know, hurting children is bad, where do we get that from? Does that make sense? All right, that did not make sense to a bunch of you, apparently. Let me try another illustration to explain, all right? At, so in Germany, Hitler, right? He slaughtered six million Jewish people. After that, the people that helped him do that were put on trial. Why were they put on trial? Had they broken any laws in Germany? Have they broken any German laws? Not, no, no, not really. They were doing what Germany said they were supposed to do. So if they didn't break any German laws, why were they put on trial? Well, if you know anything about the Nuremberg trials, they were put on trial for breaking laws against humanity. Well, where are those written down? Where did we get that? Because everybody understands, hey, you can't, it's wrong to slaughter six million people. Where do we get that? We get that universally, that's evidence for God, but forget that for a while. Here, here's what I mean. So C.S. Lewis was kind of a famous theologian. C.S. Lewis was raised in, in kind of a Christian home, but then he saw all the injustice in the world, and then he rejected God. So he does not believe at God in this point in his life. And here's what he would say. But because he's a thinker, listen to how he processed this. He says, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that without God, there would be no standard for justice. He's saying, if there's no God, how can I say this is just and this is unjust? That all comes from a creator beyond us. How can we call one thing good and another evil if we have no standard beyond our own opinions? Because if we're just going by well, whatever the majority says, well, now we're back to what happened in Germany. The majority of the German people were somehow okay with what was happening, and it was still wrong, and we all know it was still wrong. So if we're products of blind chance, if we're a result of a cosmic accident, how do we call some things evil? So this is the problem that whether people are in the church or out of the church, they tend to face this problem either with their head or their heart. They either tend to do it kind of emotionally based, like something's happened to me, 
or just sort of intellectually, how can this be? It doesn't make sense. So the heart, when we feel it emotionally, what's going on there is like we have put our faith in bodyguard God. And so bodyguard God is the God who won't allow anything bad to happen to us because we talk to God, we pray to God, we know God, we may follow God, we go to church, whatever it is. And many like bodyguard God. But the problem is when evil suffering hits the person believing in bodyguard God, they doubt and turn away because it's like bodyguard God didn't do his job. And so they, they walk away. They think God exists to make sure nothing bad happens to his people. But God never says this. If you think that, have, if you think God exists to make sure nothing happens, nothing bad happens to his people, you haven't read the Bible. Because all over the Bible, bad things are happening to good people. Jesus was crucified. Talk about the most unjust thing that ever happened in the history of our world is the Son of God, who is perfectly righteous and without sin, was killed by his own creation. Have you read the book of Job? Think, think about it, just the New Testament. Most of the books written in the New Testament were written by people who went on to be tortured and killed for their faith. Nobody, when that was happening, thought that was an inconsistency with God. You know, Paul writes a bunch, he gets killed, Peter gets killed. You know, all these people are getting murdered for their faith. Nobody's going, oh, wow, that's, that's not jiving with God. No, they all get it. There's no problem there. Everybody understood that Jesus said we should expect persecution in this world as believers. Jesus said we should expect trouble in this world, although he overcomes the world. So where do we get the thinking that God won't ha let bad things happen to us? And I think some of us, we drift into that because we think, well, I really love God. And if God loves me, he should love me in the way that I would love me if I was God, you know, kind of a deal and not let anything bad. But over and over in the Bible, that's not what's happening. Jesus, he had 12 disciples who he taught and trained for ministry. But he actually had other very close friends. And, and the three closest friends we know that he had was a man named Lazarus, Lazarus and his sister Mary and, and their sister Martha. And so one time, late in Jesus' ministry, he's teaching, he's with his disciples, he's kind of on his way to Jerusalem. Things are getting dicey. People want to kill him. And Lazarus, a super close friend of Jesus, I mean, he stayed at their house. He knew them well. They were good friends. Super good friend of Jesus gets sick, and he's so sick, the sisters think that he may die. And so they send word to Jesus. Here's the way it reads in John eleven three. So the sisters sent word to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They don't even use Lazarus' name. They're like, hey, this is us. The one you love is sick. Lazarus, your close buddy, your friend is sick. They don't even name him. And then it goes on in verse five, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he, that he was sick, Lazarus, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, this is not the way we think Jesus should respond, right? 
Okay, Jesus' three closest friends outside the disciples, one of them sick, looks like he might die. Word is sent, hey, Lazarus, he's sick, he might die. We believe in you, we know you, please come. And then what does Jesus do? He stays there two more days. Now you can dig into this a little farther and try to figure out, well, maybe because they were about a couple of days away, it could be that Lazarus died before, as he got that message, Jesus knew that. But anyway, Jesus didn't save him. So then Jesus then goes to the town and goes to the tomb. But notice, he let Lazarus die and he let Mary and Martha experience all that grief of their loss of their brother. And then he gets there and Jesus goes to the tomb and then Jesus himself cries. And then we know the rest of the story that, that Jesus raised Lazarus and then calls him out. You know, and everybody's like, what are you doing? Roll the stone away and everybody's like, what? Calls, calls Lazarus out. Lazarus comes out. He's hopping out. He's all bound like, like they bind them. You know, unrelease him, loose him, take his, bound, his cloths away unwrap him, and then comes out. And because of that, because so many people had known Lazarus and it was so close to Jerusalem that a whole bunch of people that didn't believe in Jesus at that time believed in Jesus because they knew Lazarus was dead. But the point is, why did that happen? Because doing that caused many to believe. Many believed. There's a reason, even though we didn't see it at the time. This week, you know, school's starting and kids are getting their shots. And one of my granddaughters uh, is getting, you know, had to get some shots for school. And, and when it comes to stuff like that, she's not the bravest granddaughter that I have. I have other ones that are a little braver. And anyway, she was not wanting to go. And, and so we all get that. How many of you have parents, how many of you as parents have held your child down for them to get some medical treatment, a shot or stitches or something. How many have done that? You know, and it's kind of weird, right? Because your kid trusts you. You know, and you're holding them down and they're going, no, 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 I don't want to do this, but you need these stitches. I don't want this stitch. You need this shot. I don't want a shot. No, no. And then you're holding them down and they're, they're fighting it and they're looking at you like, traitor. You're supposed to help me. What's going on? You know, a lot of us have been through that. Hey, we get it. But we know, why are we doing that? Because they don't understand this is for their best. So here's the deal. What's your greatest pain? What's the greatest area in your life where you've experienced suffering? And the first thing is this. People who deny God because of pain and suffering and evil, a lot of times, it, it's, check this out. Whenever you're talking to somebody like that, notice this, because sometimes they're mad at God. They don't believe God exists, but they're mad at him. Well, what's that all about? If, if there's no God, why are you so angry? You know, what, what's, what's going on there? And, and here's what we should tell them. If there's a God big enough for you to be angry at any time you go through pain and suffering, then there is also a God big enough to have reasons for that that you can't understand. That's just the truth of it. But we keep asking 
Why? 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 Today's the first Sunday of a new NFL season. Who's excited about that? I've been seeing some jerseys today. Who's apprehensive about it? Like, yeah, I'm watching, but I don't know. Yeah. So I was reading this thing called the Babylon Bee. I don't know if you ever heard it. And they're, they're talking about, these are questions that wives ask husbands during the game. So you ready for this? Just came out the last couple of weeks. You know, where a wife will, will say, okay, they sit down, they're watching football with you, and then she'll say, so which one of these guys is Michael Jordan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Or, hey, you know, how many home runs does it take to get a double bogey? You know, yeah, this football, football. Or, hey, honey, can you help me renovate the kitchen right now real quick? No, I'm, I'm watching this game. Or, you know, you'll be watching a game for like two hours and ever have this, and then, you, then your wife asks, what team are we rooting for? <laughs> but wives, if you really want to really confuse your husbands, you know, really want to get them to tune in on you, say something like this. Why did they stay in the nickel package when they should have gone into the dime package when the offense came out with an empty backfield and a five-receiver set? You know, you ask them that, and then they'll be going, well, hey, let me think about that a little bit. The point is this. Sometimes, we're, you know, we, we're asking all these questions. But you wonder, how's God thinking about all this? You know, he, he just keeps, like Job keeps asking him. God basically just says, trust me. Trust me. And by the way, God could answer why. What if God just said, okay, I'm going to answer you? Do we realize that we probably wouldn't understand? You know, I'd be like, hey, God, I really want to know this time. I want to know why. I suffered a loss. Somebody close to me died. They were young. They shouldn't have died. I want to know why. I want to know why. What if God, and, and God doesn't answer, but what if God did answer? What if he said this? Okay, Kevin, sit down. Put your thinking cap on. This is going to be kind of complicated. All right, so get ready. Actually, the answer involves a lot of advanced math and several dis- dimensions that you guys know exist but you can't identify. You know, those kind of come in play. And there's actually, I'm going to mention several people that haven't been born yet, but here goes the answer. And then God answers us. And then we're, we're kind of, our heads spinning and we're sitting there, you know, and I'm thinking about that. Oh. Wow, there's a lot of dynamics there I didn't know about. But at the end of the day, what happens? I still feel pain. I still feel the loss. I'm still grieving. That answer, even though it's an answer, and even though it's an accurate answer, that doesn't help me. Right? That's why God maybe doesn't answer us all the time, because we still hurt. So bodyguard people are sort of about the heart, but if you're approaching this problem of, of good and evil, you know, and suffering and pain, intellectual people, they're more about the inconsistent God. That, that's their sketchy view. Their view of God is, well, God's logically, he's inconsistent. He says he's all loving. He says he's all powerful. But yet these bad things are happening. There's evil in the world. There's suffering in the world. It's all over the place. He's inconsistent. How's that happening? He's either limited in his power or he's limited in his love or he doesn't care what gives. But remember, evil was brought into the world by us. We sinned, first Adam, then us, and that brought suffering as a result. And God doesn't force us 
to not do evil. God doesn't force us to do the right thing because he's given us the freedom. But with that freedom and our wrong choices, sin, pain, suffering, evil all came into the world. But suffering is not always the direct result of somebody's personal sin. Sometimes we get caught up in that way, and that's, that's not true. How we know that are events in Jesus' life, like John chapter 9, where Jesus, he's in his ministry, and he comes across a, a blind man. And as they're walking in, he, his disciples are there, and then they ask, Jesus, who, who sinned? I mean, being born blind in the first century, very difficult, hard life of suffering. Who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he would be born blind? And if you'll remember, Jesus answers him. He says, you guys don't get it. Neither. And then he says, hey, neither sinned. He was born blind to show the glory of God and then Jesus goes on to heal him. And by the way, this guy was kind of a courageous guy. This guy's like, hey, and even though he's threatened to be thrown out of the synagogue, which is a whole nother issue, you know, that he would have to live with and all that, he puts his trust in God when it's very controversial and, he has, and Jesus has a lot of enemies. This guy doesn't care. If you read that story, you see him moving closer to closer to God all through that story. Jesus is saying, hey, suffering's not always the result of someone's sin. Suffering originated with evil, and God allows it for reasons that we can't always understand. So people ask, well, if God's real, why would he allow me to go through this path? And here's the deal. For you personally, I don't know. But there could be a million good reasons I'll give you an example of some. Why pain? Why suffering? Well, pain warns us of danger. Pain warns us of greater pain. Pain humbles us. Pain can draw us to God. Some people, when they experience suffering and pain, run from God, but other people do the opposite. They're drawn to God. They ask the questions. They come to God. Pain also teaches us that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient for us. Pain reveals who we really are. I mean, when life is perfect and everything's great, you know, we're a certain person. But when the wheels fall off and we experience pain and suffering, then people see who we really are. Pain equips us to help others. All this, by the way, we can get from one chapter in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul's talking about this thorn in the flesh that God has allowed in his life, and we see all that, all those reasons that that may be true. And so there are other times when people ask Jesus about the question of suffering. Sometimes people brought up an event, and Jesus kind of talked it because they're asking. One time, Jesus is with his disciples, and a couple of things happened kind of in the news of the day. And they bring that to Jesus' attention to try to get a response kind of on why would this be allowed to happen. This is in Luke chapter 13, beginning of verse 1. It says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, meaning Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So just pause there. 
This is an event where Pilate, the same Pilate who was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, went in and slaughtered some Jewish Galileans in, during the time they're giving their sacrifice. And so while they're making a sacrifice of animals, they are slaughtered by Pilate and it's so gruesome and so messy and so unexpected that the blood of the people gets mingled in with the blood of the sacrifice. So this happened. These people run and tell Jesus about this. And then he continues in verse two. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying, yeah, people die. Sometimes they die even doing the right, right thing. Jesus is saying, hey, we all die. Sometimes unexpectedly when we're in the middle of worship. Sometimes any other time. He says, be prepared. Repent and be prepared for death. Make sure you're right with God. Then Jesus brings up another local event that had happened. He says in verse four, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the other men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Says the same thing at the end. He said, hey, remember when that tower collapsed here around Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam, and, and then 18 people? You know, it's just a random kind of an accidental thing. No, it wasn't evil. It wasn't somebody doing it. It's the tower fell down and 18 people just randomly died. He said, you think they were worse than anyone else? He said, hey, our life in this world is temporary Get ready, repent, make sure you're right with God. And we see tragedies like this every day. Death is coming to us all, unless the Lord comes back first. Be prepared, be right with God. But still people ask, why pain and suffering? Well, we know it's a result of our rebellion against God, but God allows it because he doesn't violate our free will to reject him. He doesn't turn us into mindless robots that has to follow him. He gives us dignity. But there are other reasons. And, and I've shared this with people before. It's kind of weird, so it's this. I believe that this world we're going through now is the best world in order for us to get to the best of all possible worlds. How many think that sounds weird? How many didn't follow that? You, can, you guys are way too kind. It's weird. It's a weird statement. All right, let me unpack it. Without this world, someday we know we're going to a world where there is no pain or suffering or evil. That's eternity with God. But we're going through this world now. Well, why, why would that be? Just in a philosophical way, why would that be? Well, because there is pain and suffering and evil in the world, we have virtues in our world that we could not have if there were no pain or suffering. So this is weird. Are you hanging with me? Here's what I mean. Let me illustrate. So for example, courage. We say courage is a virtue. Courage is a good thing. You know, in our culture, we throw the word hero around a lot. But to me... A hero is somebody who risks his life for somebody else. 
Somebody who risks their life for another person. To me, that's what a hero is. And what is that? That's courage. It takes courage to risk your life for somebody else. So what if there's a burning building and there are three kids up in the second story window screaming to get out, but they can't get out? And so somebody with courage, a hero, would run in, risk their life in the flames and the smoke to get the kids out. And maybe they do or maybe they don't, but whatever. They're courageously, they go in. They're a hero whether they pull that off or not. They risk their life for somebody else. But if we live in a world where there is no pain or suffering, then that wouldn't happen. There is no courage. Because if we lived in a world without pain or suffering, well, we wouldn't have to worry about those kids because they couldn't possibly get hurt. Flames are all around them, but they can't get hurt because there's no pain and no suffering in our world. And then you couldn't have courage to go in and get them because if, if you can go in and get them and you can't get hurt by going in and getting them, you just walk in and escort them out because there is no pain or suffering. Anybody following me at this point? If there's no pain or suffering, then there's no courage, and that's a virtue. So back to my statement. I believe the world we're living in now is the best world in or- to go through in order to get to the best of all possible worlds, which is with God in the future. Why is that? Because then we can live where there is no pain or suffering, but still have virtues like courage because we went through the first world. Does that make sense? All right, I'll take that back, but whatever, just if you're with me or not. But who said God would not allow suffering, pain, or injustice? It's all over his word. The Bible teaches those things happen even to God's people. But a time is coming when there will be perfect justice. There's injustice now. Yeah, we get that. How could God exist if there's so much injustice? Have you read the Bible? Right, we get it. God is the answer for the injustice in our world. God's going to take care. A day is coming where all injustice will be punished. That's what scripture's saying. Justice will come, real justice will come for everyone. And that's not good news for us because we've all sinned against God. And God will spare On that day, God will spare those who've humbled themselves before him. Think about it this way. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has a God of the universe who suffered. No other religion in the world has a God who suffers. It makes no sense. Why would God of the universe suffer? To deal with our evil. To love us. That's why he would do that. When God sent his son into the world, you know, he didn't come and Jesus just waved a magic wand and all evil and suffering, you know, and pain went away. No, it didn't. Instead, Jesus entered into the pain and the suffering. And in amazing love, he died to save us for the penalty that's coming for our sin. It's the whole point. God created us. God created you. God loves you. No matter who you are, God loves you. And 
God wants a relationship, a connection with you. God is inviting you. God wants a connection. A holy God wants a connection with you, a sinner just like me. God gave us freedom. And we've all misused that gift to do wrong. And that has resulted in evil and suffering and injustice in our world. And God could get rid of it all. But he'd have to get rid of every one of us in order to do that. But God has a plan. Jesus came and lived a perfect life with no sin. And allowed himself as the creator of our world. He allowed himself to be tortured and killed by his own creation. And Jesus felt all the pain that we would feel if we were tortured and hung up on a cross. It's not like he's God and doesn't feel any pain. No, he entered into human flesh in order to experience that pain and that suffering. And why would he do that? To pay our punishment for sin. To pay the just punishment that justice demands. And then how do, how do we get that? Because the Bible says that just doesn't go for everybody. Why? Because God does not violate our freedom. So how do we get it? We get it by repenting. Repenting just means that we admit that we've sinned against God and we turn toward him seeking for forgiveness. We understand that we've sinned, that we deserve eternal punishment from God because who we sinned against is, is infinite. We deserve hell separated from God forever, every one of us. But he offers salvation. But we have to repent. We have to turn to him. We have to use our will. You know, we have to turn to him. Admitting our sin and putting our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And you always hear me say that, Jesus alone. I was saying that at baptism. It's because as human beings, we keep thinking, yeah, I'm trusting in Jesus, but also I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed six million people at all. God's saying we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we put our trust in Jesus, realizing we're not bringing anything to this exchange, this deal. It's all God. It's all grace. It's all a gift. And when we put our trust in him, he will come into our life and he will help us live it. And we will be saved. That's what we call salvation. Why do we call it that? Salvation or we're saved from the right penalty that I should pay for my sin. But we do that only through repentance. That's salvation. Jesus is the greatest hero. And he died for you. He came for you. He knows you. He knows every bad thought or thing that you've ever done. He still loves you and died for you. So this is the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. And so a lot of people here, most people have already made this decision. But if you haven't, I don't want to close the service without you having another opportunity. Right now, I'd like us just to bow our heads. And I'm just doing that to kind of give some privacy um, and, I, and also eliminate distractions. So here's the question. Will you put your trust, your faith, 
in Jesus alone today? Will you admit your sin and put your faith only in Jesus? Will you do that now? Who is saying, yeah, today I'm putting my faith in in Christ as far as I know for the first time in my life? Here's what I'd like. I'd like you to raise your hand and, and our heads are bowed so nobody's really looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just saying, raise your hand just as a way of acknowledging that and we'll pray for you even though we don't know your name. Just right now, if you're ready to do that, you walked in here, you don't know you're facing Christ, but right now you're putting your faith in Christ, the God who died for you. If you just raise your hand and if let me see you and then just put it down. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just raise it up. Thank you. Raise it up and put it back down. Thanks, thanks. Thank you on the back row there. Let's put it up and down. Hey, today I'm putting my trust in Christ. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. You can do this silently. Don't wanna embarrass you. You can trust me with that. This is just a prayer that expresses your trust in Christ. It's good just to, to verbally kind of get it out there. So you don't have to do this verbally. I mean, you can just do this silently. God knows your every thought, but just express something like this to God. Father God, right now I'm putting my trust, my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation, understanding that he paid the price, my penalty for sin. And God, I'm asking you to help me to follow you. And Lord, I understand that your spirit will come into my life and help me to follow you. Lord, I want to love you back through trying to do live life the way you'd want me to. God, thanks for loving me even though I don't deserve it. In Christ's name.